this week's show, we're joined by longtime friend John Kent. John got his start in the industry washing dishes while still in high school. While at university, John started working at Eastside Mario's, then moved on to Hannah Bella's Bistro, Chainsaw. He opened up a grocery store with his wife and is currently a wine consultant and sales rep for several independent wine distributors. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Kip Saunders. With me, as always, Dan Soretta, the producer of the show. How's it going, Dan? Doing well, thanks, as always. Uh, another day in paradise. Yep. Uh, uh, well, I'm saying it's the same story every week. I have nothing new to report. I'm bored shitless. I want my bar to open up. <laughs> but uh, we'll do it when everybody's ready to get back safely. Nice. Uh, we have a great guest today, uh, Johnston Kent, um, good friend of the program. Uh, before we get bring him in here, just a reminder that the best way to help the show is to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, it just takes a minute, and uh, and you don't have to listen to them even. Just subscribe. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so I'm bringing in the man known as Johnny Goodtimes. Johnston Kent, how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys doing? Well, surviving. How's that? You at least still have some uh, shit to do with uh, some wine deliveries uh, during this. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Both uh, I worked for a few different agencies, and they were all pretty quick to pivot to selling to uh, private consumers, private clients, uh, which was great because normally it's just you know ninety five percent of it is selling to restaurants and hotels and bars and whatever. So. Yeah, I consider myself lucky that I still have something to do. Well, I, the embarrassing thing for me is that you now know how much I've elevated my drinking during this crisis because you're making weekly deliveries to my Amen. house. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> there are lots of people in your boat. Actually, we're drinking one of your wines right now. Oh, no, we're not. We haven't got there yet, but we do have oh, a couple on the docket. The narrow, the, the Nebbiola Dalba. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and the, we got a, the Klein Syrah in the, in the holster here, too. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. Keep it up. Oh, don't worry about that. Like I said, yeah. I, li- I, I live with a 15-year-old. There's lots of wine drinking. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I know. I was laughing just at the fact that I'm pulled up in our bedroom right now at 6 o'clock on a Monday, and I'm already about three or four deep. That's how you do it. That's, yeah. how, that's how we do it at the Industry Podcast. That's right. Yeah, well... I know you guys encouraged me, and I just didn't want to let you down. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get started here in a little bit of your background. So you've been in the industry for as long as I've known you. Um, uh, and aside here, Johnny was the MC at my wedding, so we are pretty tight. Uh, so, so there might be some a little, a little, yeah, a little bias in this episode. But um, okay, so you worked uh, in the kitchen originally in your first industry job. That I didn't know yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to throw that in there for you. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if he knows that. Mm-hmm. So the, my last couple of years before university, during the summer, I worked in a kitchen at a, uh, it was like a destination fine dining restaurant called Devlin's Country Bistro. And I grew up just sort of outside of Brantford, in between Brantford and a little town called Mount Pleasant. And it was in Mount Pleasant. And uh, it was uh, Chef Chris Devlin who had started this place. And it turned it into, like I said, the destination restaurant and eventually blew it out into a huge catering operation as well. And that was where I first started washing dishes when I was like 17 and then working into doing a little bit of uh, 
prep work as well over the summers of uh, when I was 17 and 18 before university. So that's kind of a, uh, we've had, um, I don't know if we've had anybody who started in the kitchen and then went to the floor yet. I can't, it's hard for me to remember now. We've had people who started in the industry in many different ways, but what, sure. what do you think working in the, in the kitchen, even if it's just in, as a prep cook and dishwasher, uh, what do you think that, how do you think that prepared you to eventually move to the other side and do the front of house? It was, I would say it was more of like, uh, it was, it, I mean, it, it's, it's invaluable to know both sides of that right. door, I think. If you're a server, bartender, whatever, to know how a kitchen operates and to be able to have a good relationship with those people, I think is super key um, yes. because that's not always the case. No. I would say for me, the main influence of working in that kitchen was uh, I, I tell people about this all the time was that um, but up until that point in my life there had been a very clear separation between uh, kids and adults my parents were sort of professionals academic type people so were all their friends and there was a very clear division between my friends the kids and our parents and their friends mm-hmm. and when I worked there uh, it was the first time I'd ever been around, uh, you know, adults, older uh, adults who treated me like an adult right. and talked to me like an adult. And it was it was that social aspect, I think, that was like the most important part of it. And it was super cool. Everyone who worked there was so cool and so nice and so funny. And it was uh, it was a great way to start out. But that's that's for sure what I would say was the main thing was just and you, uh, like I, I, just because you touched on this. Um, like I've worked in several places where the kitchen and the front of house got along like gangbusters. We all would hang out and drink together and what have you. And then I've worked in also just as many places or like I've worked at, uh, at one place for many, many years. And the, obviously I was still there, but the kitchen staff would circuit would um, move in and out. And uh times where just like nobody got along with the people in the back of the house and there was just like a wall built up and it creates like a really negative vibe anytime you're going to pick up food or oh yeah total nightmare yeah so that i mean that is it's it's definitely an underlooked part of this and i've always like since i um moved into the ownership side i was definitely always trying to encourage a um like at least uh civility between the front of house and back of house and kind of get drive the point home that we're all a team no matter what. For sure. And, that, and, you, and you can't, you know, I mean, I've seen it a million times where you get into a situation where everybody thinks that they can do everybody else's job. Yeah. And that's, it's just not true. <laughs> well, it's so funny too, because like you get some of these chefs too, who are just like, treat you like an idiot because you didn't go to chef school. And you, totally. And anytime you fuck up, they just demean you. Meanwhile, yeah. If you're not, you're not supposed to say anything to them if they fuck up somebody's dish. Like, 100%. yeah. So, yeah. and that, that's just a bad thing. I actually, I've worked in several places like that. And it, it tends to happen a little bit more in the fine dining places, that old school fucking um, chef mentality where like the, your first reaction is to yell or throw things, right? Oh yeah. It's amazing how that has persevered down through the ages. Yeah, it's like, like into like a modern era where people care so much about the culture of business, and yeah. uh, you know you still have guys because that's how they came up. They came up getting screamed yeah. at by some head chef who was like, you know, a raging alcoholic and had marital issues. So yeah. just like <laughs> on top of everybody all the time. 
And it's just amazing how that's like that uh, dynamic has persevered in an era where the people are so concerned about how staff is treated and how staff respects the job that they have. Yeah, and they're still out there because, like you said, the, the, it's just been passed down. But I think I do think it's we're starting to wean it out a little bit. Like, For sure. where it's just like Absolutely. there's very there's less and less of that, and there's even if even if the Definitely. front of house and back house don't get along, like they don't hang out, they there's they don't yell at each other either. So that's yeah. no, it, it's it, definitely that, changed over the course of my time. It is getting better, but we all have nightmare stories of chefs just fucking screaming at us for no reason and throwing shit. And I'm just like, what? What the fuck, man? Like, you fucked up three orders tonight. I didn't say shit. I was just like, don't worry about it. Even though I'm the one who's going to get yelled at by the customer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're the one who always has to face the music. That's the Yeah. Um, and often, like, I, I feel like your personalities are drawn to the side of the house that suits them best. And, like, the sure. only, you, you definitely find people who are in the on the wrong side. But, like, people who are in the back of the house, they're artists, but there's probably a reason why they don't want to be at the front of the house, even though you'll make more money at the front of the house, is because they're not into that social exchange. Like, Yeah, they don't want to deal with the shit of talking to people yeah. all, all day and all night. Fuck, if I didn't have this podcast where I was forced to talk to people and now that we're in this pandemic, I would just I'd just go straight to a vow of silence. <laughs> um, okay, so you, you, you worked there in the high school, you get a little bit of a taste of the industry. And yep. then when you came to university, did you immediately start working at a restaurant? Or... No, I didn't. I All through school, I had uh, hardcore labor jobs. I, uh, oh. I worked in a foundry doing like straight up continental shift, 12 hour shifts. And, uh, then I worked. Is that what you call a continental shift? It is. I, this term is new to me. 12 hours is continental. continental? Shift, it's when you switch back and forth every two weeks between working days and working nights, oh. which is super good for your, uh, emotional, uh, fragility. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't realize yeah. that's such a classy name. I would have just called it shit work. <laughs> yeah, totally. You, you work 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for two weeks, and then you switch to doing 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. for two weeks. Okay, um, so you did that. What else? And then I worked on a, this it's a landscaping crew, but essentially it was mostly what we did was lay interlocking brick. So that was not very fun either. So yeah. by the time I did that all through my undergrad, because I needed to have a job where I could make quite a bit of money and work a lot of hours. And uh, so that's how I sort of paid for most of my university. And then when I was in my last year of university, I wanted to get a job to save some money to go traveling. And I oh, I loved my first experience working in a restaurant. So that's when I got back into it during my uh, my honors year, my undergrad. But at this point, now when you get back into it, you've decided to go strictly front of house. That's right. Yeah. And so yeah. this is at Eastside Mario's. Yeah. Which so, is a famous Canadian, what, pasta chain? Yep. Um, so that's when I first met you. And I well, used to, I know you worked there for a really long time, like longer than most, most people hang in for those sort of. Corporate, corporate jobs that you get for your sort of first job. But I remember asking you about it one time and you told me that it was because essentially you had just the hours you wanted and you were playing in a band that was touring pretty extensively at that point, correct? Yeah, totally. It was, they were so nice to me and it was so flexible that uh, basically I worked there on and off 
I want to say for like six years, sort of in various part-time and full-time capacities. I went, I worked there, saved uh, over the end of my undergrad, then uh, went during that summer, went traveling. And then uh, I worked for briefly for a finance company. Still seems impossible to me. And then uh, <laughs> came back and for grad school and went back to doing that again. And uh, then I just continued doing it. Uh, once we started the band and started touring all the time, and they were, I could just, you know, say, we're, I'm going to be gone on the road for four to six weeks, and that would be no problem. Then I could come back, and they just put me right back on the schedule. So right. it was just a flexibility that I couldn't uh, couldn't leave. Well, the one thing I remember about you working there too, you had a pretty decent setup. You were bartending, but you also had a pretty decent um, section of tables as well to work at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a great place to bartend. And because I was playing at night a lot in the band and uh, I could also do like some day work, which is, you know, not really the norm for a lot of people our age. And uh, I would sort of go in, open the bar, work over lunch into the afternoon, and then I would finish in time to like rip to rehearsal or if I had to play that night. So um, and then on the nights that I didn't play, I'd go to bartend. Right. And uh, so tell me about that. Um, okay, so first of all, let's talk about like your experience working in a corporate spot, despite um, despite uh, the fact that like maybe uh, like, in, sorry, I just lost my train of thought, but essentially what I'm saying is like, I know it was great for your schedule, but mm-hmm. tell me about like working in a corporate spot. Oh yeah. How, how you're feeling. I mean, you're, yeah. You can't, you know me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not cut from the corporate cloth. It was not, uh, it was definitely like a little bit of a soul sucker. Um, but, uh, I was also young, right? Like, I don't know. I was in my early 20s. It was a huge restaurant. There were, you know, at any given time, there were like, I don't know, 16 front of the house staff working. Um, so it was really fun. Um, but for sure, there was like an aspect to that uh, corporate uh, family dining situation that definitely didn't jive with my character then and right. seems impossible now. Um, but it, what for a job like that where you're you're doing a lot of turnover at any side scenarios, like you're serving a lot yeah. of tables quickly. Uh, so time. those are when we talk to some other people on the shows about this as well. But like, what a valuable experience that can be for because once you have that down, you can pretty much yeah. do any job. It's just uh, absolutely, refining. and that's and that's the whole key. And that's I mean, looking back on it, I always think it's kind of hilarious that I worked there, but like everyone else will tell you who's worked in a place like that. It really, if you take it seriously and do it right, it really lays the foundation for you to do anything in that industry in terms of, you know, learning how to do it under like pretty close scrutiny in a super busy environment. Like that place was, I don't know, for the years that I worked there, three or four nights a week, at least it was always like an, an hour waiting list. Like it was right. Wow. Yeah. And so in space like that as well, you're just kind of, your, your whole, you're not going to, your bill sizes aren't huge. So your whole, um, 
financial situation is essentially based around making it is the turnover, like serving as many yeah, tables sure. as you can over a shift. And yeah. you're dealing with a lot of families there. Do you have uh, do you have any pet peeves from dealing with uh, that type of a clientele? It's mostly pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nightmare, right? It's yeah. people, you know, and they're just trying to get in and out of there without any major incidents. But and you got to keep bringing that fucking free bread and salad and like, oh, dude, yeah, that'll keep you in shape. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've definitely seen some customer meltdowns in my time. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember seeing a guy. I always remember this. It's always a good one to keep yourself grounded as a person in the restaurant. I saw a guy just like he was losing his mind on a server, and a person that he knew walked by right as it was happening. They were like, "Bill," he was like, "Oh," and just he could see in the moment how ashamed he was of what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, that's I, great. <laughs> I always kind of remember that moment as kind of a general, you know. Like the general experience of Fuck, that should be, losing their temper. That should either be like a meme that's just out there for everybody to see on the internet now, or it should be on a very popular sitcom. And like, yeah, because, totally. So people yeah. can all see that and then realize sure. this is what you look like. This is this is what it's like if the mirror's pointed at you during this. Exactly. And, and, and this is all just about some dish of pasta or some drink not being where it's supposed to be at a certain time. Like, yeah. it's like also, the things, it's not important. It's also, hey, buddy, I don't know where you think you are, but this is fucking Eastside Mario's. This is the Olive Garden <laughs> of Canada. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're not, I don't know where you think you're dining right now, but... <laughs> yeah, it's like it's the like, Dieppe of the dining world. Like, it's yeah. from here. If the quality is uh, not up to snuff, maybe uh, loosen the wallet strings a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, so uh, that's your first taste of like full-on bartending there, though, right? Yeah, it was my first my first job serving, and then I, I really quickly moved into bartending there. But and, uh, so uh, most of the drink, drinks you're making there, you're, I'm guessing you're mostly like pouring beer at a place like that, or are you making cocktails? No, it was a lot of beer. You know, a million Caesars. Um, oh yeah, Caesars. There was, there was and then. An unbelievable amount of blender drinks during the spring and summer. Oh, right. I forgot you guys had a blender. What a nightmare those fucking things are. Oh, yeah. We had two of those Island Oasis machines. And I can remember times where I would have like four blenders in my hand pouring the various cocktails into the different blenders and, uh, you know, having two of the machines going. And while I'd be doing that, I'd be making other drinks. It was a lot of those. uh, So this was like the early 2000s. And, also, uh, uh, just as an aside, like those fucking blender drinks, not to judge or sound pretentious, they're trash. And I'm just throwing it out there. And if you're drinking them, if you go to the restaurant and them, you're also trash. Just get, yeah. get a real fucking drink. Yeah. They, well, yeah, they're they're fun, but uh, they are what they are. Yeah. I was what I was thinking about. Uh, I was listening to you talking to Jotter, and I was thinking about doing. Uh, making cocktails in that era and there's i don't know if you see this there's this perfect meme of a, a person who's like a bartender now who's been doing it for a long time and they're like i love the craft cocktail culture it's so different from how things started they're like when i first started bartending we just put all the ingredients into one shaker shook it with one hand as hard as we could while we gave a wink at the gun with the other hand <laughs> 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 
like that is the yeah. exact era I started bartending. Oh in. man, I used to work with a girl, a woman who uh, <laughs> used to shake so fucking hard that it was like deafening. Like if yeah. she started shaking a margarita at the bar, then nobody could like. It'd be, this is a bar that was probably a two hundred fifty people capacity, and no one could talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just settle Just down. Give, <laughs> give it a hell. Yeah, like, uh, shaking it harder is not making it taste better. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so from Eastside, so you worked there for, like I said, for a really long time. You're touring. You're, yep. uh, and do you work there the entire time that you were in the band? No, I, we were still working in the band when I moved um, from there to um, a, a friend of ours, uh, Hannah Santos at the time, was her last name. She had a wow. restaurant in, in Uptown Waterloo, and she had uh, was moving from her first location into a second location. And my girlfriend at the time worked there, and they needed people to go into the second location. And so I moved over to work there, and that was definitely more of a fusion sort of situation and more fine dining, like blacks for the servers and linens and right. whatnot. And that was, uh, that was when I got... Uh, a lot more serious about uh, dining culture and everything. Interesting uh, culture behind the scenes at that place as well. Uh, the, really? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I don't know how much we want to get into this. That's because, a whole other podcast. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, but <laughs> I do <laughs> know. I do know that at one point, uh, a certain certain people. I don't want to rat anybody out here, but certain people had gotten into religion very strongly during that the the operation of those restaurants and. I came in the back because my girlfriend was also working there at the time, and I <laughs> saw them, well, a, gr- a group of them standing in a circle, holding hands, <laughs> praying that God would fix the dishwasher. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> impossible. And I was like, okay, I mean, yeah, <laughs> give it a shot, but let's say if this doesn't work by tomorrow, maybe call a repairman. Yeah, we're well, gonna call the guy. Maybe you can call somebody else. Call the big guy. Call the big guy first. Sure, like yeah. can't get it done. Whatever your hierarchy is, like yeah. if it's first God, second, yeah. like second the Fonz, just to <laughs> pound it once with his fist. <laughs> Oh, that would be the greatest, that's the greatest speed dial list of all time. He's <laughs> like, I got a problem, no one can handle. I'm going yeah. God, Fonzarelli. Like, yeah, God, Fonzarelli, fucking um, the equalizer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so interesting so spot there, but it would, but they did crank out some really good food. Evil Knievel, that would be my, my third <laughs> Yeah, the food the food uh, program was very strong there, though. Hannah's uh, it was way way ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, and they were um, oh, I don't know. Just while we're on the topic of this restaurant, I have so many stories about that place. They, uh, you're talking about her husband at the time, Santos was his last name. We'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah, he <laughs> once got me to DJ one of her family members' weddings. And he showed up where I was playing, and he's like, at the time, and I was playing a house set, and he was like, yeah, this is what they want for the whole wedding. And I'm like, that can't be right. And this is back in the day where it's like, like before Serato kind of like, you're literally dragging your vinyl, right? And so yeah, I, <laughs> he said, yeah, this is what, no, that's all they want. They just want house. And I'm like, no, but the, he's like, yeah, it's a small wedding. They all think they're all into this music. The bride is really into this music. I'm like, okay, well, you're the one hiring me. So 
I show up at the wedding, all I have to make, no, 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 that's not what they wanted at all. They wanted normal wedding music, but that was all I had. And I spent the entire wedding just apologizing to everybody. One woman came up to me and said, actually, at some point, she was like, okay, but for this music, does the beat ever change? And I'm like, well, not if I'm doing it right. Kind of the whole point there. Funny. Anyway, okay, so that was just an aside. But we're moving on um, to talk more about that restaurant. They were putting out some cool food. Um, Was this at the... This was before they opened the tapas sort of spot in the basement? That's right. So we were just upstairs for, I guess, a couple of years. And it was an amazing crew of people who worked yeah. there. A lot it, of superstar it, servers there. Totally. And and in the kitchen, like the people who worked there have gone on to start so many businesses. Like whenever I tell people that, they're always blown away. Like that was Nick and Nat who yeah. have the Fat Sparrow Group with umpteen restaurants now. And uh, Kirsty was the sous chef. Um, right. Kirsty and She owns the culinary studio now. Her husband, Colby. Uh, worked in the oh. kitchen there and owns Four Quarter Butcher. And, uh, you know, uh, there were uh, CK, who owned the West of Soul food truck. Chris Kim worked there. Yep. And just all kinds of people who went on to start all kinds of businesses. And, uh, yeah. It was well, great... I mean, Leanne, who's a part of uh, Beavis totally. and Lolo Ann. Yeah, like, I'm, so, yeah. I'm sure I'm yeah. out names here. There's so oh, many. Uh, that Like, it was a real all-star crew there. Um, and, by the way, if any of that crew is listening and wants to be on the podcast, we'd be welcome. We, we, we would welcome you. Just DM us at the Industry Podcast. A little side plug there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so that's the upstairs part. And then they eventually open a, a second restaurant, a, like a sort of a sister restaurant in the basement. Yeah, so there was, there had been a bar in the bottom of that building because it was the Waterloo Hotel building. And it was originally a restaurant, or sorry, a bar back in the day. I want to say like the 60s maybe called the Lou. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. The 80s, and then, 70s, and 80s. then over the years, various people had taken a shot at it. Um, yeah, they even tried to re... Um, Bring it back. Yeah, right? they, they tried to... Because uh, Cam was the bouncer. Remix the Lou. That's right. Our friend Cam was the bouncer and, there. And the outfit was right. a jean shirt and jean pants. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the Lou was a pretty famous um, campus, I think a Laurier campus bar. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, the, my, my dad would go there when he was in school. Right. But uh, then it was a place uh, called Sabor when we were in the, at the bistro upstairs. And then when they left, the guy who owned the building approached Hannah. Things like this would always happen to Hannah. Oh, and yeah. uh, basically, I think leased it to her for a song just because he wanted something in there. So it had been sort of recently renovated, um, but uh, they sort of switched up the bar, did a little minor uh, renovation in there, and uh, opened it as the Hannah's Tapas Bar, which was a little shared plate sort of situation. And also a little bit, at least for uh, Kisser Waterloo at the time, that idea had not happened in town yet. Um, Ooh, not at all. And no. it was difficult yeah. getting people on board with it. I'm sure. I, and I, and I, I managed that place. I was the first person she hired for that place. And I sort of put everything together uh, 
for the front of the house for that spot. Right. And uh-huh. actually, now that that reminds me, didn't Carly and Ryan, who now own Public, which of is course. also a tapas place, work there as well? Yeah. And they did. And I can't oh, believe wow. I didn't mention that. Yeah. They, that's right. Well, I, I just I forgot too. So that's. Yeah. Work, Ryan work. worked at the bistro with us. And then Carly came on working with me downstairs a bit. And uh, yeah, I can't believe I mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, so that. And then now they own a very successful and amazing tapas restaurant in town here where they've just sort of refined that concept to uh it brought it up another level but like yeah but uh yeah at the time that was like tapas obviously is an age-old tradition of spain whatever but um and certainly we're in kitchen waterloo we're sort of like a couple years after toronto or whatever Mm -hmm. like toronto comes up with a bunch with a new concept or idea then it's going to get here a couple years later first one to take a crack at it right um yeah and they were the first to do, or Hannah was the first to do that here. So that was definitely a new concept. And and so, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Like, because I find like, we were the first, Sugarum was the first speakeasy in mm-hmm. um, Kitchener Waterloo, which is also a couple of years behind Toronto, if not more. Um, but it is hard to get people's head around a new idea in a smaller town. Oh, big time. The, the, the people who, uh, especially at that time who were going out to spend money in cool places were a little bit older and they were, I don't know, low cultural literacy. Is it, I guess the way <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it was, it was a nightmare trying to uh, get people to wrap their heads around it. They would, and their natural reaction was to, not open-minded it was like to get their back up as much as possible yeah like and do you mean sorry to interrupt you but like do you mean like why like why like what was the problem the plates were too small they could not understand the the idea of doing shared share plates yeah they they needed to order an appetizer and an entree (laughs) they could not wrap their heads around it and you know so every like literally almost every table at the start was a struggle and they just they, people like that, I mean, I was talking about this with my wife uh, yesterday. Just Who saying, also worked uh, there, correct? What's that? Didn't, say, didn't your wife work there also? I, Hannah's back today. That was yeah, when yeah, we first yeah, knew each other. Yeah. But we, but we were just saying how, especially in this day and age, how because people spend time in restaurants and spend time drinking, everybody thinks they know everything. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything. So they go in there and they think you're idiots for yeah. doing this. Concept. Oh and man, I can't them that not only are you not idiots, but you know way more than they do, and that this is cool and they should try it. And every single time they throw a bit of a shit fit, and by the time they leave, they're happy and they've done something new, and it's been amazing. It's so but funny so, how you say that because the same thing happens at my place where it's like no I doubt. hear all the time, like, oh, but don't you think people would find your place better if it wasn't tucked in an alley with an unmarked door and didn't need a password? I'm like, well, of course I fucking think that, but that's, <laughs> that's not the point of what we're doing here. <laughs> my, my, my all-time favorite is when people are making that case to you when the place is like acting fast yeah, yeah, super busy. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know what you should do? Is have like a better sign and like more... Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You're just like, 
well, dude, we're at fucking capacity right now. What the hell do you want me to do? Like, oh, I literally had somebody doing that to me in that exact situation. And then they they themselves stopped and said, well, I mean, obviously you're full tonight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one night at words. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my old business partner, White Rabbit, used to call those people the shadoos. You know what you should do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, well, so you're you're kind of breaking in this new concept there, but also for you personally at the time, you're doing a sort of higher level of service than you had ever done before. Um, definitely. Definitely more of a fine dining grade to yeah. it. And talk to me a little bit about um, what you enjoyed or didn't enjoy about that step up in service level. I sort of loved everything about it. The customers were more savvy to a certain extent, obviously. And then uh, we, I started getting way more into food because I was meeting, uh, you know, serious chefs and people who, like, I worked with that were way more serious about it. That was where I started uh, getting into wine, uh, right. which would go on to be a major theme in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially uh, working in the when we started the tapas bar, I had, that was where I met uh, the, or I guess sort of in, in both parts of Hannah's, that was where we met uh, our friend Balia, who was the woman who sort of first really got me interested in wine. Yeah, let's talk about Amelia for a second, actually, because she ended but, up, uh, oh, sorry, uh, we got a bit of a drag here, so I might have interrupted you by mistake there. Um, the, let's talk about Amelia for a little bit, because okay. she... Uh, she sort of what she went out to California and started growing wine for. for or I'm probably fucking this up, so why don't you tell it? No, no, yeah. So it's Valia, and she. Uh, oh, I fucked up her name, so that was the first. No, one. Don't worry. <laughs> she, uh, she worked for a wine agency. Actually, one of the wine agency I still work for now. And uh, we would buy wine from her. I was also friends with her uh, partner at the time. And that was how I sort of knew her. And then when they got separated, she's American. Uh, she moved out to California to live and work at a vineyard that we used to, that was a supplier for the agency that she worked for, Vintage Trade. And over a really short time period, worked her way up to becoming the winemaker there and has gone on to have like a whole career um, doing the Desperado wines. Um, and she is married to the dude who owns Herman's Story as well. If you're looking for some Syrah out of the Paso area in California, his wines are the shit. So she's the one who sort of, sort of first starts getting you into wine. And, I, and like you said, that's been sort of mm-hmm. a big part of your career ever since. Do you, when did you start doing the WSET courses? So I, I started getting into wine. And then I left working at the tapas bar to go traveling. And when I came back, I things had sort of, the dynamic had sort of changed at that place. And I was not really interested in going back to work there. Um, and my girlfriend at the time had someone reach out from a wine agency to talk about the possibility of her working for them. And it turned out that it was not going to be a good fit for her. And really, maybe it would be a good fit for me. So I uh, started working with Lifford Wine Agency at that point. Now, pretty and, big. Yeah, big Toronto agency. Yeah. 
And they had just sort of recently started an LCBO sales division because at that point they were selling strictly consignment to uh, restaurants and had sort of a small crew. It was an amazing agency and it was owned by Stephen Campbell. And he was a super cool dude who really invested uh, in his team and his employees. And so they, uh, they, paid for me to do my uh, WSAT courses okay. at that point. So, And so for those who don't know, I know we talked about it on the show before, but if you haven't been listening to all the episodes, this is a, well, you should. We have a back catalog. Go back, go back, <laughs> listen to all of them. But um, we WSAT essentially is a course that teaches you about um, everything, everything wine, taste, like how to taste it, how to, um, and how to recognize different grapes, et cetera. And you move up the ladder to you can either become actually a great explanation on this is on our just sharky episode where she describes the difference and with and, and the west class on one as well where you describe the difference between how you can go about learning about wine either on the somalia route or more in sure. in the function towards being as teaching about it um but yeah so uh the, and they, I, I also remember that they like when you're talking about him being a good guy to work for didn't he take you to italy and yeah, I got to travel all over the place. It was crazy. The guy who ran my division of that agency, Craig Dablois, he and I got on really well. And uh, within a couple months of starting there, I got to go to Ben Italy and travel all over Italy, Sicily, and visit a whole bunch of different suppliers, which you got to understand is crazy coming from the situation that I had come from. Like, I... It, <laughs> Like, I think of myself as a smart and capable guy, but I did not deserve those experiences at that point in my life. Um, we, uh, we were traveling all over, you know, Tuscany and uh, down through Italy. And uh, like I said, out to Sicily, and it was crazy experience. And obviously, like, really deepened my interest in wine. And uh, then while I worked there, I also got to travel all over Burgundy with those guys. And I got to go to California and do seminars all in uh, Napa and Sonoma. So it was, uh, the benefits of working for that company were pretty amazing. And so at the time, you though you're still working, so yeah, you took, you, you, you essentially stepped out of the realm of serving and went right into the wine rep sales at that point. You're working for Lippard. I had met you just yeah. before that. I think our first experience when you were back at, at Eastside still was like, having a blackout party. There was a big blackout in Kitchener Waterloo where oh, everybody mm-hmm. had lost power for yeah. Ontario and your yeah. state there. And uh, I spent yeah. that party at your apartment where you lived with John Goldsmith, who was a previous guest on the show as well. And uh, we, what I remember about it is we, <laughs> well, we tore it up pretty well. We don't even have to get into the details, but the, there was lots of beer coming out of a cooler because we didn't have a fridge. And um, and then yeah. I, I was just getting to know you we guys. Got, sorry, a bit of a drag. Yeah, I, I was just getting to know you guys that pretty much, and like that's how you get to know somebody pretty quick when you're all drinking in the dark together. But the um, I remember finally the power went back on, and then immediately you guys started playing old fish concerts, and I was like, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> <laughs> all I can remember is. We, we got really good at hosting parties during the blackout. 
we we even that we had like a system. I remember for like you, you're like if the power goes out because it happened so many times. We were like, you do whatever you can to acquire as much beer as possible. I'll take care of the ice, and <laughs> we'll meet back at the apartment. And uh, I I remember by the main thing I remember at, at some of the more uh, well operated blackout parties were was uh, when the lights would come on. It, it was the opposite reaction that you would expect because people are the blackout parties were so good that when yeah. the lights would come on, everyone would be like, like fuck. Well, that might have just been the fish shows, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I t- you know what's funny? You mentioned though, this wasn't a side we were talking about blackouts. Fucking on, on another previous guest on this podcast, uh, Ethel's lounge holder, Glenn Smith once made us all work through one of those fucking blackouts. Like, we yeah, just had no, candles right. out on the patio. You just put ice in just serve cans, cash only. Uh, cash registers to work. And I'm like, I... So, this is not... This has got to be against the labor board regulations at this point. Like, totally, totally illegal. But we made good money that night because everybody felt bad for us. Like, totally. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like sympathy tips. Um, okay, so you... Uh, so now you're working at Lifford... Um, yeah. And, like, I'll let you tell the story, but my recollection of it is you started to just get a little burnt out with all the hours on the road. Yeah, I was, I, I had an enormous territory, and it was sort of a new uh, thing. Sorry, just let me interrupt you for one second there. Can you explain to people what this means, like having a big territory and what your job actually entailed? Just if it sure. was off of it. Yeah. Okay, sure. So I work for a company uh, that imports wine from all kinds of different suppliers all over the world. So they, and Lifford has a very big portfolio. So I mean, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, California, France, Italy, everywhere. And, uh, but, you know, Chile, Argentina. And then they sell those wines to restaurants, but they also sell wine to the LCBO. And you basically, what you try to do is... There's two different sections. One, the general list, which are the wines on the shelves in the store under the country headers. Right. Um, where it'll say like France and they'll have all the French wines. And then there's the section vintages. And that's a different set of buyers. And that's a different application process to get wines in there. So we did both. We had wines that we were trying to get uh, into the LCBO in the general list. And the way that you would do that is... Uh, set up meetings with the store managers um, because they would have some discretion about what products they carry. How does that work? Because uh, I've never seen that side of it. Uh, like I, I, I'm very familiar with like you coming to my bar and we do a, a taste. Like these are great days for a bar owner. It's what it's, it's what makes you realize after all the stress that you did the right thing with your life because people like yeah. you just come in with a bunch of different wines and let me try them all. But is sure. that, do you, are you doing the same? with a specific representative of the LCBO at a store when you go in? Yes, except the degree of interest from an independent business owner is about tenfold that of an LCBO store manager who has 8 million other things to do and really has no incentive to speak to you. Uh, and maybe doesn't know less, shit or care about wine, right? They like, don't at all, yeah. at all. And especially when I started working there, the LCBO uh, had got themselves into a, a situation where, because they keep kept their employees in part-time status so long that they could, had trouble promoting people into these management positions and they had started to hire people 
with management experience from other uh, industries. So for example, I had guys managing major stores in my territory who had just come from managing a Canadian tire or a Walmart. Oh my God. Yeah. And those guys are so not, they don't know fuck all about yeah. 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 Okay. So, so that's, that, so it was a very, that part of the job was extremely challenging and extremely frustrating. And that coupled with the fact that I had like 120 stores in my territory so how do you how do you go about that? Like, what's your sales pitch to like someone like that? It's like a, a an ex Canadian tire manager, let's say. Like, how do I you just, I try to sell them on the fact that the products that I have are from family owned and operated uh, wineries. Uh, that they are, although they might be slightly higher in price, they are substantially better in quality than the wine in the sections that they would be competing against. And mostly they make those decisions based on whether or not they like you. And right. uh, because that's what I was going to say, because I like, I don't even know if that transfers, how does that transfer to the customer? Because if the average Joe walks into the LCBO, even if they go to the vintage section, there's no like write up saying this was a family owned winery. Like you're not yeah. right. So like that. Well, yeah. The, the vintage section was a little bit different because the, when I was doing that job, the product consultants who worked, the guys that you see in the LCBO stores with the white shirt on usually, where the they would make the decisions about what they would order. Mm-hmm. So basically the vintages purchasers would purchase a bunch of wine from your agency. And then part of my job was to get the consultants in the store to pull it from the warehouse so that we could get it sold through in a reasonable amount of time, which is sort of what they base reordering that same product on. Okay. Um, okay, so you're having that challenge. You're also um, navigating, and I think this is where I cut you off, was you're navigating this giant territory. So it means mm-hmm. a lot of hours in your car, on the road, yep. driving. Like how far, what was the extent of your territory? I would go up to uh, like everything in southwestern Ontario, really. Like from Guelph to Windsor. If you want to keep it on the 401 corridor, but then everything north and south of that as well. I'd go up to Tobermory in the summer and, uh, you know, and then all of those uh, cities off the 403. So it was, it was just a, it was a massive uh, mission. That's like 350 kilometers north to south. Yeah, it was, well, I I, I spend nights out on the road and stuff. Well, let me just take a break here to say that, like, for all the people in the service industry, whether you're, like, a server, bartender, chef, and more specifically manager, bar, owner, treat your fucking reps well, man. That job is not easy. Like, and, and, and what I hear back from reps all the time, it's like, it's so easy to make a good relationship, make this relationship work if you just treat each other with respect and, like, not it's not always what can they do for you, but sometimes you got to look back. Oh, well, how can I help my rep move their product? Yeah. It's somebody you make a connection with. I I have carried reps from bar to bar just because I developed a personal relationship with them. You obviously you being one of them, but like we were we were friends. So that's a different story. But I have reps um, that I still deal with at Sugar Run that I essentially carried along from White Rabbit just because they treated me so well, and also bet, yeah. yeah, and 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 like. Just recognizing the like the exhausting job you guys do, like it's yeah, a lot. It's a, it's a lot of time in your car. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, 
that was a lot, a lot of travel and a lot of, a lot of effort, yeah. which was what kind of brought that to a head for me was it just got to be really stressful. It was so hard to get those general listings with the store managers. And that was a, a big part of my compensation for that job. Yeah. How does the compensation work or do you want to talk about that? It was a commission off of that. I, I, I had a salary, but then I had additional commissions off the general listings, but there was no compensation for the stuff that was done for the vintages. Um, and, and what about for bars and restaurants? Do you get commission for that? At that point in time, I'm only doing LCBO. Oh, right. Because that was your specific job. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But in general, in the industry, you obviously, you get commission if you sell something to a bar or restaurant. That's correct. And most most of the agencies the reps work uh as um oh my god uh like sort of like a freelance situation right <laughs> i can't think of the the term um but they uh independent contractor okay yeah and, yeah. and uh then your 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 all of your compensation is the commission on the products you sell right so okay yeah. so um so then, when you, you pretty much were burning out on this job, I, I don't think mm-hmm. that's—I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth if I say that. Um, no, nope, not at all. Okay, then you really take a fucking hard right-hand turn from there, and you start working. At, and I don't know if you want to pour one out for them right now, but uh, the glorious chainsaw. Oh yeah, it was uh, a right-hand turn. I don't know if it was like a U-turn or like. <laughs> massive launch off the road uh but uh yeah it that all happened out of nowhere because a friend of mine jeff savitz owned that property Mm -hmm. and wanted to develop it and they had groundwater issues and he wasn't gonna be able to do it for a few years and then his friend so he tried to he originally so he got stuck with this bar Mm-hmm. And then he tried because it was a pre-existing bar. Right. And then he tried. He asked me to, if I wanted to go partners on him on it with him, and I did not because that <laughs> bar was a good show. And I was working at Lifford at the time. And uh, then another friend of his, Ryan Good, who I didn't know at the time, ended up taking on the business. And he Jeff asked if I, he could give Ryan my contact info just to talk to him. And so I met with him, and he like asked me what it would take to work there to to be the manager to Ryan, Ryan had no bar experience. He had industry experience. Oh, he, he did? Had, he had been a chef back in the day. Oh, okay. I don't remember that. But yeah, Ryan is just has, I don't know, like extremely high business acumen. He's done yeah. all kinds of businesses. Um, he was just at that point in time, he owned a property guys franchise that he was in the process of unloading. But uh he uh so he met with me and asked me what it would take to work there. At that point in time, I had just got back from Burgundy, having like the craziest wine experience of my life. Um, so I, you know, I threw some pretty, for for that type of job in that industry, some pretty, not serious numbers. They were like reasonable, but I sort of would said I would want this salary. I'd want to be able to make the schedule hire some friends, um, you know, and uh, be able to bartend. Right. Because as many people know, the sweetest move you can have is to 
yeah, and gets paid to be a manager, but also bartender. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and he said that was cool. And I don't feel like I, you know, took him or anything like that. Like, no, no. Like, he, you, you asked was, for what you needed to do to get out of your current situation, and he gave it to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then and he went above and beyond that. Like, he was an amazing guy to work for. Um, but, it, man, you could not have more of a shift than that. Yeah, it, describe Chainsaw. Describe chainsaw to the people. Yeah, so I know that it's been talked about previously yeah. with you guys, but yeah, it's like a bad acid trip. Yeah, <laughs> it's a total nightmare for people of normal sensibilities. It's like a chaotic student beer hall that has karaoke all the time. So they're coming coming from some pretty high end jobs, like selling mm-hmm. wine from Lifford all over fucking Ontario, being. Mm-hmm whisked off to Tuscany to learn a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. And then previous to that working in like a fine dining restaurant. What it this must have been like culture shock for you. It for it, it absolutely was. It, again, remember I was born and raised in Brantford. So <laughs> I knew how to be around some grit. Uh, but it was for me, the main motivation to do it was at that point in time, I still thought that I wanted to own my own bar at some point, And I had right. never done high volume uh, of any kind. Right. And I, oh, it was the one thing I, I'd done like a extremely busy franchise restaurant, but I had never had that high volume sort of nighttime bar situation. That, that place for all intents and purposes was a nightclub. Like, Exactly. It, yeah. it really was like it, yeah. it operated in that nightclub uh, uh, model of yeah. making all of your money in two to three hours. Yeah. And I'd never done that. And I wanted to know what that was about. And, and I really like I learned it. It's a system I like to call death by a million quarters. Like when I worked in nightclubs, working at Starlight or Revolution or whatever, it's like, you know, they say, but like talk about like death by a thousand cuts or paper cuts or whatever. Yep. It's like death by a million quarters. Like you will make your however many hundred dollars over the course of the night, but you do it like a quarter at a time. And like, just, just like, I I couldn't deal with it anymore. Like just the, it was almost like insulting. Like I I know I'm not, I know I'm not fucking like lighting shit on fire and flipping things in the air and shaking up an unbelievable craft cocktail, but I still am a human being and open to beer for you. And all that's worth to you is 25 cents. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we used to say. Time to count the quarters. Time to count the quarters. Oh, fuck. And then I, I remember um, some of our friends working at like a heavy nightclubs where they would walk around with like just giant like Pit beer pink, pitchers full of change, beer pitchers full of change. And then you go into those. Kids. Yeah. Going to those um, change roller machines that they used to have at like Kmart or wherever the fuck. And uh, totally. yeah. And, and like and you lose money on it, but it's still worth it because otherwise you just walk like, walk, like unless you're looking to put a a bunch of it in the sock and you need to handle some business with somebody who wrongs yeah. you. <laughs> but you worked there in a place like that too, Dan. Oh, so. Yeah. I got one of those machines, the things you could just shake and it would kind of filter the coins at different levels. Yeah, we had one of those. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. spent about four and a half hours rolling all the coins. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, also because it was the, the, the coins are, and what people don't realize they're sticky, right? So yeah. Those, oh, yeah, you got to wash them. Yeah. Uh-oh, what a process. Yeah, people have asked me, hey, could you separate the coins, the quarters that are rate in 73? Because I like to see the little moose on the thing. <laughs> Just yeah. like, fuck off. <laughs> um, but you worked there for um, 
uh, a fairly long time. How many years? Well, that, that whole operation was supposed to be open for two and a half years. Right. Talk about that. that was going to be the amount of time that it took to get the soil issues sorted out to develop that property. Because Jeff had developed many properties in Uptown at that mm -hmm. point. And uh, it had sort of, I think, the same model in mind with the ground floor retail with condos on top. And uh, then the business took off. And we, I mean, again, you know, you are sort of like the exception to the rule in terms of having a put, put together person in that industry. A lot of sort of nightclub type places are not generally run by super hardworking, put together people with a good mind for business. Well, yeah, I'm They're not sure I fall in that category either. <laughs> Thank well, you. But with, with Ryan, you know, we would we'd sit around and we would talk about it after work and we would figure things out and figure out what wasn't working. And, and it was like, uh, I don't know, we t I mean, the place was ridiculous, but we, we uh, took it really seriously and figured out how to make it uh, really successful. And instead of just being a place that was open for, you know, a couple of years uh, for shits and giggles, I ended up, I think he, you know, had like a 10 year lease or more on that place. But and, didn't they have? Uh, did they have a countdown clock, or was that just an idea that they thought they were going to go with? I think that was just one of our myriad of ideas. Yeah, I see that. You guys should have done that. That would have been yeah, hilarious. Totally. Although it wouldn't make much difference when you kept yeah. going, I guess. But yeah, um, yeah. So I talked to uh, we talked to uh, senior Goldsmith about this as well mm -hmm. during the uh, when we were talking about Chainsaw. But talk to me about the karaoke, man. Like, do, do I have to? <laughs> Just like, just like fucking a scourge on your soul every night you go into work hearing another. Um, you would you would think that at some point you would be able to get into a zone where you don't even hear it, and the only way you could do that is in those peak hours where we would be so rocked, where there would just be you know like twenty people deep at the bar. You would be able to kind of momentarily shut it out. But at all other times, it was like, do you have PTSD? Do you have PTSD from this time? I have PTSD <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but I'm sure that's one of them. <laughs> okay, we asked so John. It was, this. Ter it was terrible. What? You know, I care about music. Yeah, I care about anything else. Yeah. So. Okay, so tell me. I, 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 I'm going to take it farther than I did with John. Then we had this question with him as well. What is the one song you can never hear again? Thanks for that job. I can't pick one i don't think because this conversation has been had so many times yeah. that i that i think of people's responses like everyone would say uh, don't stop believing journey yeah, or like sweet caroline or like yeah. all these different things but for me it was like probably the songs i didn't know because there was a small sect of really hardcore regulars who were beautiful people who whose musical taste I could not have shared less. And <laughs> yeah. it was like a lot of like big like metal anthems. Oh yeah. That, so that you don't even know what this fucking song is called, but if you ever heard it again, it would probably be like like you would just come out of Guantanamo Bay. I would read on my on the ground like yeah. if I heard it again. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, and is there one that, was there a song that you used to really love that got ruined for you during that experience? Yeah. 
I, I like Journey before that. <laughs> a little bit. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, like, a little, I, like, in a cheesy sort of way. I kind of have always liked, uh, it was this guy from Journey. Remember he had that single, you could have been known. Steve Perry, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, Sherry. And oh, the best part about Sherry. that song, one of my favorite things about that song is, oh, Sherry, because that was it was a song to his wife. And then it just, it hit me when I was a kid when that song came out, that that man, his wife's name at one forever was Sherry Perry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I can't yeah. believe I never put that together. Well, she could have been gone, then she went. Um, could have been gone. So then you, uh, do you want to talk about what ended your tournament chainsaw or should we just move on to the next? Yeah, no. So I was supposed to be there for two and a half years. I ended up being there for almost three and a half. And I, like I said, I hated it. I, 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 I wish I could like, I, I loved Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, but I could not stand that place. And it had been that way for a long time. Uh, and there were a couple other things that I was kind of interested in doing. Um, Ryan and I had like, I wouldn't say a fallout, but but like got to a point where neither of us were really happy. And I had to get out of there because Mm -hmm. I just couldn't stay. I had, I had learned everything I was going to learn about that part of the business and was desperate to stop doing it. But as you probably know, from working at places like that, it is so hard to transition out of something when you are working until three in the morning every mm-hmm. night. Yeah. And it's not a regular life. I, no. And eventually got to a point where I just, I it had to stop immediately so that I could actually figure it out. And because Ryan was such an awesome person to work for, he had things like an employee savings program. Right. So crazy, I had a bunch, I had a bunch of money that I had paid into that. So it was, uh, just a you know because of that it was an opportunity that you wouldn't have working at other places. Yeah, I that's had you know, I had thousands and thousands of dollars saved up in it, and I was able to sort of walk away and explore my options. And I got immediately offered a bunch of uh, spots, and that's when I, I I went to work at my friends had just Carly and Ryan, who we talked about earlier mm-hmm. when we were talking about Hannah's had just started public, and I went to go uh, work with those guys there. And so this whole time, you're also still working at um, Vintage Trade, um, still selling wine, right? No, that's not no, that's not correct. I started doing that right as I was. Uh, I had stopped selling wine altogether, but uh, I had reached out to David, who owns Vintage Trade, well, uh, towards the end of my time at the bar, when I knew that I wanted to get out of there, and I wasn't exactly sure which direction I wanted to go. So right. that's I got. Uh, so I got uh, back doing that with him. And then started at public right after that. So I was so so I was doing uh, selling wine, yeah, selling wine for vintage trade and working at public, and working at public. Yeah, yeah. And was your territory a lot smaller for vintage vintage trade then, or for vintage trade, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. David, uh, there there was a guy who had worked in my area before, and he was leaving to take a regular person job, and. He just wanted somebody who could sort of uh, expand the operation a little bit. I knew tons of people who owned restaurants and bars, so I was able to get it up and running really quickly, and uh, that got me right back into wine. And uh, and uh, and then I was working at Public as well. Uh, yeah, so talk about we were talking about Public a little bit with Carly and Ryan, and like how it was sort of 
what Hannah's had done with tapas, but a little bit to the next level, right? Really? Yeah, Ryan's an amazing chef. Yeah. And he's been around and traveled and worked around the world a bit. Carly had really cool style and aesthetic. And uh, my wife had gone, who I was not my wife at the time, um, uh, had started that place with them. Mm-hmm. And I came in right just after the very start of it um, to sort of help just do some bartending and to help do some wine stuff a little bit. And then it, the place just took off. It was, I think it was, uh, you know, touch and go for a little bit at the start. Cause they well, started they, it with no money and four kids and it was yeah, not are, a great yeah. situation, but then it took off. We had just an amazing team of people and uh, we were able to get it uh going and I think it really added something to the city because there was nothing really like it and uh it was just people who like really knew what they were doing and we we had like a really good idea of how we wanted it to be and it really worked out yeah it's 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 still up to this day a phenomenal restaurant I can't recommend it enough um yeah if you're in the Kitchener Waterloo uh region please check out public it's amazing um so you're you're still doing wine at this point. You're working at um, public. I don't know if we need to get a whole bunch into your experience at public because it's probably pretty similar to stuff you had already done before at sure. that point. Yeah. Um, then you make another turn in your life when you get mm-hmm. you get you get married and you and your wife Sarah decide to open sort of a well you describe what that business is, was the JP Grocery. So yeah. basically. There we had done a we we ended up wanted to try doing our own business and uh, we had done a ton of research and talked to a ton of people and I don't know, it was weird because we really had not ever tried to attract investment or anything like that and we weren't really in a position to launch into something but just through a series of connections and a bunch of meetings uh, ended up you know being offered some financing to do this business, which was basically a small downtown, like urban style grocery uh, with the main business being catering. So we had a full commercial kitchen. And then we also on a mezzanine level had a cafe. Right. And so that's a lot of, that's like three different things going on. Now I know obviously the cafe is not a, is not a, um, grand departure from the service industry. Like if you can serve drinks, yeah. you can serve coffee, uh, catering, same thing. The grocery yeah. part of it uh, is a huge difference. And, yeah. um, but okay. I do know that Sarah has experience in. The yeah. She had, some, she had some retail experience with, uh, doing some management work with, uh, the fiddleheads people yeah. and doing, I, I, I yeah, I shouldn't really speak that much because I'm not exactly sure what all her different jobs were. Um, but she had lots oh, that, of I mean, that, that's something you guys can talk that. about on your anniversaries. That yeah. <laughs> you can figure out what your wife used to do. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so but that but for you, but, like uh, going from a, yeah, no, I don't know. Do you want me to just sort of talk yeah, a little bit? I do. Sorry, there was just a little drag there. Um, yeah, no, so we uh, we got into doing that, and the whole base 
basis for the business was uh, doing catering, and uh, it was great, and it was a good business. It was mostly dealing with the tech community downtown. We were sort of, we had some issues with the bank right from the start that kind of put us behind the eight ball right from the get-go with that business, and it really... Uh, it really soured us on the whole operation, which was really unfortunate because we put a lot into that. And uh, as you guys know, it was a pretty, pretty serious operation and it was uh, a lot to run. And our idea was never to be, uh, I mean, we were happy to work hard uh, day in and day out it uh, quickly out of necessity became a situation where we both worked seven days a week all the time. And it was just not a good situation for our family. And uh, we did it for about two and a half years. And we were looking at taking on some additional investment to potentially uh, make it so we could take a little bit of a step away. And right as we were about to do that, we sort of were looking at what our life was going to be like for the next 20 years. If we did take that on <laughs> and, and it was a, it was a very quick decision. There was not a lot of build up to it. It was like, there was a crack of light where we saw a way that we could get out of it with very minimal uh, damage. And uh, I mean, obviously there's going to be a fallout of some sort when you do something like that. But we just saw a way to get out of it, and we just decided to go and talk to a lawyer, an accountant, a trustee. And within about two or three days, we decided that, you know, we didn't want to do it and that it wasn't a good idea for our future. We pulled the trigger and and got out of it and immediately both got great jobs and were so much happier. Uh, Let's talk about that for a second, though, because I think that that like as much as it happened quickly for you, which is probably better because if it was a longer, slower Mm -hmm. decision, it would have been much harder to do, I think, probably like when you're forced to make a decision quickly, sometimes that can be easier for you. Um, But like as far as people like myself and anyone else who listens to the podcast who is either in the industry or not, who owns small businesses, like it can't be an easy decision to make to like just fucking pull the book. It really isn't. And I think I think Ryan with Chainsaw is a really good example of being smart and being super realistic because people cannot do that when it comes to their own business. A lot of people, and I'm not trying to put anybody down or anything, a lot of people maybe don't have as many options right. as uh, we did, like maybe not necessarily have the connections or the other employment options that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people are just not willing to let go of something that they've worked so hard at. It's fucking and hard. And that's admirable for sure. Yeah. Uh, for, but I think that can put people in situations where they uh, can do a lot of damage to their life and can, yeah. uh, you know, do maybe some damage to their future by holding on to something that I'm not saying it is, that it might not be working but that it isn't necessarily working for them. And that's what it was for us. We could have kept doing J&B forever 
I would just be dead in like seven years. Yeah, and you, I just you're wasn't really into. I was having health problems because yeah. I was working all the time, and I had blood pressure issues, and it was crazy. We weren't being good parents, and right. uh, and really for us, it just it was more a matter of just like doing the right thing. And as soon as we sort of like I said uh, to Dan, like as soon as we saw that like sort of little crack of light, it just all made sense all of a sudden. And I, if there's any advice that I could give to small business owners is that it's not the end of the world. I mean, especially in this time that we're in right now, it's not the end of, obviously this is a very different situation than when we did this, Um, but it's, you know, you think about what's best for you and think about what's best for your family or your living situation and, uh, you know, there's there's life beyond that, for sure. Well, and it's a scary time, and it, but it's very, like, um, apropos to what's going on right now because, like, there are going to be several, like, thousands and thousands of businesses that have to make the decision that you made. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's good to get the perspective that, like, you know, things go on, life will be okay, you'll be okay. Because I know that from even my perspective, there is a certain part of you that's like, you don't want to let go of it. Like, it's something... For instance, like my place took so long to get open. It would be really hard for me to just like go back tomorrow and just be like, okay, fuck it. You know? I know. Like, oh, God. I know. Like, I, I'll, I'll never even forget the day I had to lay off my staff when we first realized that yeah. this is before we were forced into shutdown. I was mm-hmm. like, like, I never had to do anything like that before. Like, I've been an, an owner and had staff, but literally telling all my staff that they didn't have a job anymore and I didn't know when it would return if at all. Yeah. It's a fucking it's hard it. moment. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, that's and, so tough. and so really, but really it's just like for all of us now, it's just like a fucking like clutching to hang on to this business. So it is a good perspective from you to like realize that, you know, life goes on, you'll find something else to do and you got to yeah. do, and you got to do what's best for you and your family, right? Yeah, I think so. And just try to maintain some hope. And uh, yeah, like there's, I mean, it's going to be a whole different world, but but there are, you know, there are always other options. And it's, I, I mean, for, that's another we'll, thing that we'll I think. We'll all just go, to, we're all going to just work at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, at least we'll, we'll be good drinking buddies. Yeah, that's not gonna change. Uh, okay, so yeah, so uh, so you guys closed down the store. Difficult decision, but at least you had the benefit of recognizing it was for your health, and you had like I think almost the ticking clock of when you had to do it made it a little bit easier, as we were discussing earlier. Um, so now you're out, and then you immediately get into you. You were still doing vintage trade wine sales during yes. the whole grocery store um vintage wine by the way as an aside sells amazing wine i've all my businesses have sold vintage trade wine not just because johnny and i are tight but because the wine's fucking amazing but then you add an additional amazing wine supplier to your portfolio in nicholas pierce yeah so i had uh a, a guy who worked with their existing rep in this territory I had reached out to me and said that they were looking for somebody to take over the area. And it literally happened like right as we were making this decision about our business. So we can and, talk. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a friend of ours, Michael Anderson, who is yeah. 
the GM at the Laura Mill, which is a beautiful yeah. spot in uh, and he was getting And he was getting really busy there. Yeah, and he just had a baby, and, like, yeah. he just had to get the fuck out of it. But A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Mike was doing a great job before you as well. Just, Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's not like he got fired. And, I don't know why people think that. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Yeah, sorry, I should have yeah. made that way more. No, 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 that's just me. So, yeah. yeah, no, and, uh, yeah, so I, I talked with the... Uh, Michelle Ratzliff, the director of operations company, a couple times. I talked with Nick a little bit, and uh, it just seemed like a good fit. And uh, it really complemented the existing portfolios that I represented, uh, just uh, in terms of what they sort of focus on. And uh, I'm, you know, I, and it was going really well. And then this pandemic hit, and like I sort of alluded to earlier, well, they were very quick to sort of shift to looking at all the different ways that you could still sell wine yeah. other than just to restaurants. And uh, we're still moving stuff. Like, Yeah, mostly to my house. Can you, <laughs> uh, can you um, talk about a little bit though that uh, like, is it unusual for two different wine distributors to have like two separate companies to have the same rep? Is that unusual? Uh, not outside of the GTA. Okay. Um, once you get into like the little further uh, points of the province, uh, no, it's not at all. Okay, like, let's talk about that for a second though, because for me, if I was looking to, let's, uh, I'll, I'm going to look at it from two different aspects. Let's say you were a small winery wine producer, and you had agreed to allow a certain. Uh, distributor to rep your wine, right? Uh, and then you find out that the that um, company shares a rep with a completely different com- company. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's that. And then also, let's say just the the owners of these distribution companies with the same rep. Like, how? It's a little. It's a little messy. I'm not it's a little messy. Like, like, how do you, like, how do you, how do you ensure that your, your shit is getting properly pushed? Because at the end of the day, your job is a sales job, right? Like, yeah. now I know. No, go. You, you go. No, I would. I, you, you can't be sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the bottom line. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people who can and are willing to do this job. It's, uh, you know, it's a hundred percent commission base. It's difficult to get products placed in certain places. And basically what it comes down to, I think, to a certain extent, is they want to try to have the ideal rep, but in in, uh, in what's already kind of a shitty situation, they just have to take the best take situation that they can get. And, and, and you- like I said, for me, I, like, I approached David, who owns Vintage Trade, and said that I was considering doing this and I showed him the portfolio. So in like, it really is very complimentary. We don't really have many of the same focuses. Okay. So you showed him what they yeah. sell and he was like, okay, I think yeah. that could work. Like, yeah, so it's, do, we have you, very few overlapping products. Do you think that if there were more overlapping, he would have said, I'm not comfortable with this? Um, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, guess, I guess you'll never know. But um, he, de- but he definitely. We already had. He already had reps that worked for him that do rep for other agencies. Okay. As well. So, so he was familiar at least with it. Like, and, and, yeah. and so maybe this isn't so unusual. 
No, it isn't. I mean, yeah, like I said, outside, like to find a guy who's a kick ass sales rep, mm. uh, you know, in Ottawa, when your business is based in Burlington, isn't really that easy, especially when it's a tiny business, <laughs> right. you know, and say, and vice versa, or same, sorry, not vice versa, but like uh, for people, for this, for a Toronto based agency like Nick uh, has, it's uh, probably not really easy to find great people out this way. Okay. Who are, so- so I have a couple more questions about this. So first, uh, if you don't mind, uh, first of all, like would, for instance, the the wine producer even know that this was something that was going on? Mm, I doubt it. Yeah, they, they, they oh, just, only, oh, only if they come for like a, to go out in the market here. Yeah, and sometimes that happens. Some, sometimes a producer will come and you yeah. and you as the rep take them around. Yeah. to different bars and restaurants that sell your product, their product, yeah. or or even don't as a way yeah. to, yeah. Okay, and then I guess the other question I have about that is how do you, as the, as the rep, formulate a plan to sell wines from two different distribution companies to, say, a restaurant? For me, it's not that difficult because my portfolio is almost... Uh, they almost choose the restaurants themselves. Like certain restaurants have certain clientele and a certain type of menu and dynamic. And that seems to fit with the one portfolio and other restaurants have a different sort of dynamic and a different thing that they're looking to do. And my other portfolio kind of works better with that. So I kind of almost, I am not, that often tasting wines from both portfolios at a meeting. Okay. And you have done it with me. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I will say that you do it in the perfect way because it's like, and I'm not saying this is because you're my friend, but like the, you do, you're, you are good at it because you have a way of like part, a, a large part of your job that, uh, that not, and I deal with reps from liquor companies, beer companies, fucking uh, wine companies all over the board. One thing you're really good at is targeting what you're selling to the specific spot. For sure. That's like like you main. like you always knew what I was would probably be interested in and then you would bring a selection of wines like that. Like the only questions I would ever get for you is maybe like what are you looking to keep your price list at? And then you would just are you still with us? I feel like you're frozen. Can you hear? Yeah, sorry. It just goes yeah. for a second. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like you would you would come to me and you would say, okay, like how many, like what's what's the top dollar amount that you're looking yeah. to sell? But then you would bring stuff from both of your companies. And and I like I for me as a consumer, I didn't fucking know which one was a Nicholas Pierce wine or which one was vintage trade yeah. wine. I just knew that you were pouring good wine for me. Like what? I, it, that's a really, really good question, a really good point, uh, because there are different reps that operate different ways. To me, my, I never want to put uh, wine into a situation that I don't think it'll do well in, because that's bad for your relationship mm-hmm. there, uh, with the ownership, and, uh, and, and it's, if it's not going to sell there, I don't want it there. I think that that's not always the case. I think there's some of stuff I mean, I'm not referring to anything in specifically in the wine world, but I definitely think there's 
you know, sometimes uh, people are just commission driven. Oh, and 100%. Just want to get as much wine as into as many places as they possibly can. And that I can't do that because I don't have, A, I don't have those types of portfolios. And B, I just think that's a shitty way to do it because I just want, I want, I care. My main concern is my relationship with the people running well, the place. I cannot tell you, and I mean, I think probably for some of those reps who are working like the bigger chain restaurants or whatever, it's like fucking just push some wine yeah. on them. But when when people like that, you got to know your client base. Like when people like that come to me, and I'm a small business owner with us uh, with us a, a smaller bar, we're gonna push out a bunch of wine because I am a wino, and so right. we know how to sell it there. <laughs> but like that, but. Um, but like for someone to come as in a bigger agency and push wine on me that like I know I'm not interested in and I like we're trying to do a little bit of a like we're not trying to sell fucking cougar juice to soccer moms that might yeah. place, right? So like <laughs> juice. <yeah. laughs> so we're so for like I want some like I don't want someone just pushing shit on me that yeah. they're selling everywhere. I want yeah. someone like you who tailors your list of things that you're going to bring for me to taste to what you think I'm going to be able to sell in my spot or what I want to sell in my spot. Yeah, for sure. But that's what you got to think about, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And, that, and that's good. That's what makes you better than the average bear at the, your, at your job. So I appreciate that. <laughs> totally appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and we have some good ones. Like you're not alone, but, but honestly, yeah. no, I know 100%, uh, anyone's looking for wine in this business, you should hit up Johnny at um, Vintage Trade or Nicholas Pierce Wines. Both both portfolios are amazing. You're going to find whatever you're looking for, white, red, rosé, in what Johnny's hawking. So, uh, mm-hmm. and, and he's the kind of rep who will tailor it to you or to your specific experience that you're offering in your business. So that's great. And not all of them do. There's big agencies that are just going to push this shit on you because they're just trying to get that commission like can, can i do a quick plug yeah yeah so it's jay kent at vintagetrade.com or john at npwines.com as in nicholaspiercewines.com and on instagram it's uh johnny underscore good times i think okay and my wife does most of my social media I know. I sent you money over e-transfer and it went to your wife's account. I'm like, I guess this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, that tells I was... you everything you need to know about my <laughs> <laughs> and, at, at any rate, I would like to say, please hit him, uh, Johnny, up, especially during this time, whether you're in the industry, whether you're not in the industry, if you listen to this podcast at all, that you can get unbelievable. Like, don't, don't settle for what the LCBO will give you. Let Johnny bring you some wine to your door that's going to be shit you can't even get in vintage juice, shit that we sell you in bars and restaurants. Um, that I, Now's the time to do it. Support support a local entrepreneur. You got it. Uh, Johnny, thanks so much for your time today. It was great as always. You know, I love you. Thanks for love doing Love you this. too. Thank you. Thanks, bud. Yeah, right. You got it. I had a good time. Thanks. Okay. Peace. Okay. Yeah. See ya.